something has been really bugging me this week. You know how much I love living in Paris? Yeah, you do complain about it quite a lot, don't you? <laughs> I do. But one thing I complain about specifically is that I hate the Netflix show, Emily in Paris, with a visceral passion. Mm. And I've started noticing more and more young tourists dressing like Emily in Paris. It's kind of like a weird Parisian cosplay. Like they've got these stupid little berets, which they wear at a jaunty angle. And it's driving me crazy, Dominic. You're becoming an old person officially. I think so. This podcast used to be a podcast for young people, but it isn't anymore. Anyway, um, this is The Europeans. It's the podcast that tries to demystify this continent's very confusing politics and celebrate its culture. This is Katie in Paris. What's happening over there in Amsterdam? Oh, and I'm Dominic, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thanks for remembering to <laughs> say who I am. You think we know how to do this by now? Not much is happening here. It's just really cold and I'm trying not to put the heating on, but you know... Everyone's going through the same thing right now. French politicians this week have been trying to get the nation to wear roll neck jumpers, which is something that French intellectuals do a lot anyway. So I guess that's going to be an extra big trend this winter. It does make a big difference. It's actually quite a good idea. I should do that too. Hmm. Um, But also, I saw a chart this week showing that um, energy prices in France are like considerably below the rest of Western Europe at the moment. We are very spoiled for now. Jealous. Anyway, um, I said this was a podcast that explains confusing European politics. And uh, this was a prime week for confusing European politics because there were many elections. Latvia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria... And uh, we've decided to delve into one of those this week, haven't we? Yes, we're going to be talking about the most complicated one. We could be talking about the election that took place in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where they are really famed for having arguably the most complicated electoral system in the world. So we've invited friend of the podcast, Alexander Breza, onto the show this week with a near impossible task of trying to help us understand the results of this election. That's coming up later on in the show, but first, it's time to find out who's had a good week and who's had a bad week in this continent of ours. Who has had a good week, Katie? Tell me. It has been a good week for the fight against golden passport schemes. Uh, You might have heard us talking previously on this podcast about golden passports. It's these schemes where you can effectively buy citizenship of a country. Um, If you happen to be a very rich person, there are certain countries around the world where in exchange for a large investment, generally half a million euros, a million euros, something in that range, in exchange for that, you can just Become a citizen. Uh, It turns out that life is much simpler if you're incredibly rich. Who knew? Who knew? Um, Anyway, we used to have a bit more of a problem with these schemes in various EU countries. Cyprus and Bulgaria have both shut down their golden passport schemes in recent years. But there is still one holdout, and it is Malta. And the EU has been threatening for a couple of years now to take Malta to court for continuing to sell citizenship to rich people. And Malta has just ignored it. But this week, the EU actually made good on its threat and it announced that it is taking Malta to the European Court of Justice. Oh, that sounds like quite an escalation. Um, Presumably, the EU thinks they are doing something illegal if they're taking them to court. Well, the EU says it's illegal. They say that under the EU's treaties, citizenship needs to have a quote-unquote genuine link to a country. Um, So for me, for example, I became a French citizen last year, but I only became eligible for that after living on French soil physically for a minimum of five years. Um, So it's usually through residency or parenthood. Paying a ton of money for the EU 
does not count as a valid link to a country, especially if you've got no intention of actually living there and you just want the passport. Malta, though, so far have basically just told the EU to F off. They are claiming this is a national issue and they haven't done anything wrong. And the Maltese government has also justified this whole scheme to its citizens by saying, well, you know, we've raised a ton of money with the scheme, more than a billion euros over the last decade. And quite a lot of that money was used to keep the economy afloat during COVID. Isn't that a good thing? So why is the EU against this? Like, apart from it seeming a bit morally dodgy, is there anything specifically that the EU is angry about? Well, the main thing is that if you buy citizenship of an EU member state like Malta, you are buying citizenship for the whole of the EU, right? Mm. So Maltese citizenship gives you the right to live and work anywhere in the bloc. So immediately it becomes a security issue. And it's a security issue because in the past, governments have not always been super rigorous in terms of checking whether people are dodgy or not before handing them passports. It's been like, oh, you want to invest a million euros here? That's brilliant. Come on in. Um, So Cyprus, for example, their scheme has now been shut down. But there was this Al Jazeera investigation a couple of years ago that showed that Cyprus gave citizenship to at least 30 people who are under criminal investigation. So there's always been a lot of concern that these schemes are being used for money laundering. Um, You know, that people might be using their new EU nationality to stash dirty money in European banks. These schemes have also contributed to housing crises in a bunch of places because the million dollar investment or whatever it is that you're asked to make in the country, that often comes in the form of buying an apartment, which then sits empty, making cities even more expensive and unlivable for the people who are actually living and working there. The other thing about these golden passport schemes that seems not great with hindsight is that more than half of the overall number across the EU have been granted to Russians. I wanted to ask about this. Mm -hmm. Including quite a lot of Russians with links to the Kremlin. Uh, And so the Cypriot government in April, for example, they actually had to admit that there were Russian oligarchs on the sanctions list that it had made into citizens. And since then, it has been trying to revoke those citizenships. Presumably, there are still Russians currently trying to buy dual citizenship so they can actually leave the country. Yeah, and I should clarify that even though the multi-scheme is still running, Russians and Belarusians are now blocked from applying. Okay. Loads of Russians have actually been applying for Turkish nationality since the start of the war in Ukraine uh, because Erdogan's government is pretty cash-strapped, so they're apparently not asking too many questions beyond, like, are you willing to give us 400 grand? Um, But it's really interesting, actually. Russians are far from being the only group where the buying of other citizenships has become a massive trend for those who can afford it. It's something that's been rising for rich people all over the world during the pandemic. Uh, So the number of US citizens doing it tripled between 2019 and 2021. Wow! Rich Chinese people have also become a huge market for this, all basically desperate to be able to escape China's COVID restrictions, which at times have just seemed to be endless. Um, So the vast majority of the people who use these schemes are just bog-standard rich people who want to be able to travel more easily. And you could argue that the passport system in general is rigged against people from the global south. Like, even if you're a very successful business person, if you come from a developing country and you don't have that useful a passport, you might find it hard to, you know, make all of the business trips that you've planned because of visas and limits on the amount of time that you can visit that country and so on. Mm. You can't really blame people who can afford it for trying to get a more valuable passport. I guess it would just be nice if it wasn't, you know, just the people with a million dollars who are able to benefit from this. So it sounds like the EU here is like specifically concentrating on 
making it difficult for people to buy citizenship. But are they also doing anything about people that tried to become EU residents? Like, is that something you can buy as well? Yes, big time. And that is kind of the fatal flaw in all of this. Um, So schemes where you can become an EU resident in exchange for an investment are still really common. Um, So in Portugal, for example, you can buy the right to a five-year visa to live in Portugal for the bargain price of 200,000 euros. And you only need to physically be there for five days a year. So it might be that Malta eventually decides to choose an easy life by just like downgrading its offer of citizenship to offering residency instead. And so when is this going to come to court? Um, Don't know. All of the reports I've read have just said a hearing at a yet-to-be-determined date. Okay. So stay tuned. I was actually briefly the owner of a golden passport. What? I mean, like, it was physically gold. Um, oh. I got robbed in Greece, and so the embassy in Athens had to give me um, one of those emergency passports. Oh. And it turns out that the British emergency passports, they're made of, like, cardboard, so they're really flimsy, but they're gold, and I felt like a VIP. It was almost worth being robbed. Wow. Um, who's had a bad week? Well, before I tell you who's had a bad week, um, I think I should probably mention that maybe this segment isn't appropriate for younger listeners because, um, (laughs) yeah, it's got an element in it that, yeah, maybe you wouldn't want your kids listening to. So maybe skip forward about four minutes um, because I'm giving bad week to the chess world, which is embroiled in an alleged cheating scandal involving some rather wild rumours of cheating using remote controlled anal beads. This is why I still make this podcast with you. It is full of surprises. Did I expect that we were going to talk about a chess scandal involving anal beads this week? No, I did not. And of course, it's not the um, most important thing for us to be discussing this week. um, (laughs) And it's not the worst thing that's happened in Europe by any means. But um, I don't know about you, but I needed a bit of a distraction from the other horrors of the world and uh, wanted to talk about chess and anal beads. So I hope that's okay. Tell me all about it. Okay, let's begin then. The chess beef is essentially between the North. Norwegian chess world champion Magnus Carlsen and a 19-year-old rival from the US called Hans Niemann. In early September, the two of them, they met at a tournament in St. Louis and Carlsen, the world champion, somewhat surprisingly lost the match against this 19-year-old Niemann. Why is that surprising? I'd like We actually talked about Magnus Carlsen a while back when he was also losing to a teenager. Like, aren't teenagers quite good at chess because they've got, you know, young brains and everything? Yes, it's true. Uh, teenagers are really good at it. And actually, Magnus Carlsen himself, I think, arrived on the scene when he was 13 or 14. Um, but Carlsen hadn't lost a long-form game in 53 matches. And also, mm-hmm. Niemann, this 19-year-old, was the lowest-ranked grandmaster competing in that tournament. So an underdog. Absolutely. And Carlson doesn't think he was beaten fairly. He didn't say that immediately in so many words. In fact, what happened was Carlson lost the match, subsequently resigned from the entire tournament and posted this cryptic video on his Twitter account of the Portuguese football coach, Jose Mourinho, saying, if I speak, I am in big trouble. Mm, juicy. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised while reading up on this story that chess players are have such a flair for the drama considering the game is so boring to watch. No offence. Lots of chess fans are listening to this podcast. Be careful. It's true. Sorry. And actually, things got a lot more dramatic when the two players met again later in September for an online match. And after just playing one move, Carlson switched off his camera and quit the game. 
wow, emotions are running high in the chess world right now. Yeah, indeed they are. And things really came to a head in the last week when finally Carlson came out with a full statement on his Twitter that wasn't just a video of Jose Mourinho. And in it, he explained that he sees cheating as an existential threat to the game. And he believes that Neiman has cheated more and more recently than he has admitted to. Oh, so he has admitted to cheating in the past then? He has admitted to cheating in the past. Um, first, mm. back when he was 12 and playing in an online tournament, and later as a 16-year-old when playing for money on chess.com. And actually, incidentally, after that uh, admission, he's since been banned from chess.com. Mm. And cheating is clearly bad, but he was 12 and 16, and who didn't try out cheating at a game as a teenager? I bet you did. Um, no comment. We have actually talked on this podcast before about how cheating in like online chess tournaments became a massive thing during the pandemic because they're all playing online. And it's like, how do you stop them having, you know, like a separate tab open where they're like, I don't know, Googling the best move to play or whatever. Yeah, it is really hard. But they did like start installing cameras and things, right? So they could yeah. see. They, they have done something to try and stop it happening. Anyway, Carlson's statement that he put on Twitter accusing Neiman of cheating didn't actually contain any evidence that Neiman had cheated. And that's been quite controversial. And some people have said, look, guys, don't tarnish this guy's reputation just by innuendo. Mm. We need to know exactly what your evidence is. Carson says that he does have more that he wants to say about it, but that he can't speak openly without the explicit permission of Neiman, which I found quite a strange thing to say, considering you're accusing them of cheating and you want their ex explicit permission to say something. Very weird. Very weird. Okay, so there's no evidence that Carlson has come out with. Did, has somebody else come out with it? Like on the internet or something? And also, when are we going to get to the anal beads? Patience, Katie. The Sentences I didn't think I would say today. <laughs> the beads are on their way. Um, in answer to your other question, what the evidence is of cheating, I don't really know for sure. Um, but his statement did lead the International Chess Federation to open an investigation into the allegations that Neiman cheated which I should stress that Neiman vehemently denies. He explains his somewhat unexpected win against Carlsen in part because he says he had by a ridiculous miracle the very morning of his match against Carlsen watched a video of a four-year-old match that Carlsen had played in which Carlsen used a similar move that he used in his match against Neiman and Neiman saw it coming and defeated him. He kind of okay. just claims that he was very lucky. I don't really know enough about chess to be able to talk about that in any more detail, so please don't ask me any more questions about that. But um, it seems that there are chess experts who are landing on both sides of the possible cheating or not cheating arguments. Some experts have been saying that Neiman has had a surprising and quite late rise to success and that his recent gameplay has been, quote, unusual. Others have argued that the Norwegian champion just wasn't playing very well and the 19-year-old outsmarted him. And here it comes. Some online jokers have decided that Neiman is cheating by getting help from someone from afar who is communicating to him via anal beads <laughs> that can be made to vibrate remotely and help him know what move is coming up. I mean, that's kind of genius, right? Because no camera is going to be able to detect vibrating anal beads. Well, it's kind of genius in a way, but then again, like, 
there are endless possibilities for like your potential next move. How would someone <laughs> communicate using vibrating anal beads near your prostate to like explain which move you should take? Well, there could be a code, you know, if it's like knight to E4, then it like buzzes e four times or something. <laughs> I think there are too many possibilities. Anyway, um, let's be honest, this is a conspiracy theory um, that came from the internet. We should not take it seriously at all. And I don't think it was even meant to be taken seriously when it was first mentioned. But it's one of those things that the internet took on and then some people did start taking it seriously including Elon Musk, who, of course, had to wade into this uh, argument on Twitter. He has since deleted those tweets. So I think he also got cold feet about the anal beads. I love that he got cold feet about that, but has left his uh, slightly unhinged Ukraine tweets up this week. Oh, yeah. Oof, Go awful. figure. Anyway, Neiman also responded to the anal bead allegations himself, saying that he was willing to play chess naked if that meant that people would believe he wasn't cheating. Now that would make it more interesting. Although I'm not sure it would actually solve the problem because you wouldn't be able to see the anal beads, would you? <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it or anything. <laughs> Anyway, enough about this. Enough about the anal beads. It's definitely been a bad week for the chess world. Who knows what's going to happen next? Let's wait for the investigation. But who knew chess could be so dramatic? You know how this podcast is celebrating its fifth birthday next month? Yes. Our producer Wojciech had this great idea that people might want to send us a birthday present. Now, you could send us cake or wine, like a nice candle. We would accept those things. But what we would really, really appreciate is if people listening to this might consider donating to the show on Patreon so that we can pay ourselves for all the time that goes into making it, pay our producers, and generally keep making it for another five years. Yeah, it's a very good idea. Although I would also really like cake right now. I'm starving. We've got some very nice supporters to thank this week who have already joined Patreon without realizing it was a birthday present. Their names are Marlena Yauk, Chloe Walker and Pietro Miraglio. We don't love asking for money every week. Um, it doesn't come to us naturally, but we do have to keep doing it in order to try and keep this podcast alive that we started almost five years ago. So head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast to find out more about how you can donate to this show with as little as two euros or pounds or dollars or whatever a month. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. We have been meaning to delve into Bosnian politics for a while now, and what better excuse than the absurdly complicated elections that happened last weekend? Bosnia and Herzegovina is a country with a pretty unusual political system, to say the least. 14 governments, three main presidents at the state level. Bosnia, of course, suffered a horrific war in the 90s, and this political system is a legacy of that. It is designed to prevent ethnic groups from fighting. But the result of that is that ethnicity remains a huge force in Bosnian politics. Is that necessarily a good thing? With us to discuss that question and more is one of the few people who didn't run for election at the weekend, it feels like. <laughs> Alexander Breza is a journalist who mostly covers the Western Balkans. A repeat guest, he was kind enough to come and talk to us ages ago, back in 2019. And we were delighted to have him back on the show this week. People sometimes talk about Bosnia and Herzegovina as having the most 
complicated system of government in the entire world. What makes it so complicated? That's a really good question. For a proper answer, we would need several episodes of your podcast, at least. So I'll try to keep it brief. So the political system that has been in place since 1995 is a direct result of attempts by the international community to stop the war that has been going on in the country for several years at that point. The war in Bosnia started in 1992. At that time, it was the worst conflict in Europe since World War II. The various attempts by the various members of the international community who were really trying their best to stop the fighting that at that point already escalated to a genocide that took place in Srebrenica in 1995 against the country's Bosniaks led to the creation of a system that focused more on how to stop the war than to make a functional country outright. So the idea was to give all three main ethnic groups, so the Bosniaks, who are Muslim, Serbs, who are Orthodox Christian, and Croats, who are Catholic, some sort of sense that they got something out of the war. It's kind of like one of those Oprah uh, show episodes where Oprah gives everyone a car, so you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. But in all seriousness, the idea was to give everyone a piece of the you know, proverbial cake, have them eat it, and then after a while, change the existing setup in order to bring it more to some sort of a representative democracy or a generalized representative democracy that you have all over Europe. What happened is that given how difficult it became to revise the Dayton Peace Agreement, that's what it's called, because it was signed in Dayton, Ohio, in the US, Bosnians got stuck with what they have and what they've had for the past almost 30 years. So the results are still coming in and lots of people just got elected. There were more than 7,000 candidates running for various jobs, which seems like a lot of people for one day of elections in a country of about 3 million people. In spite of the fact that the results are still coming in, can you see any broad trends from the results in terms of winners and losers? Let's say that Bosnia for now has three presidents, three main presidents at the state level. Obviously, each of them comes from one of the three main ethnic groups. You have a Bosnian Serb, Bosnian Croat, and a Bosniak representative within the presidency. And one thing that was quite noticeable is that the usual ethno-national choice of Bakir Izetbegovic of the SDA party, which is a Bosniak ethno-national party, lost to a candidate from SDP, which is a center-left party, a typical socialist or social democrat party, rather. And you could say that that was a victory for the more civic-minded people in the country. Same goes for the Bosnian Croat position or seat in the presidency, where Željko Komšić, who comes from his own party, DF, who's also a center-to-center-left candidate, in Bosnia definitely center-left, uh, he won over a candidate from the Bosnian Croat mainstay ethno-national right-wing party, HTZ BNH. Those two, you could say, are the main positive takeaways from the elections. At the same time, Bosnia finally has a woman in the presidency, Željka Cvijanović. But she's more of a Georgia Meloni kind of type. Mm-hmm. She comes from the SNSD party, headed by Juan Milorad Dodik. Um, He's a right-wing nationalist separatist leader of the Bosnian Serbs, known for his friendship with one Vladimir Putin, who he has visited twice since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
He's long maintained very close relations with the Kremlin in Moscow. And she's just a continuation of the same kinds of policies, beliefs that he has been peddling for the past several decades. So on the one hand, you could say at least finally Bosnia got a woman president. But at the same time, at what cost, you know? at the cost of having another separatist, another nationalist in the presidency. Bosnia could have even been the first country in the world that would have had two women presidents at the same time. Yet both of them would have represented a right-wing option. And I'm not entirely sure that that's a positive. So you just mentioned Milorad Dodik, who is this Putin ally and uh, Bosnian Serb strongman who decided not to run for president at the state level and he decided to run for the position of president of the Serb region, the Republika Srpska. He seems to have won that race and it's not as powerful a position as it would have been if he was president at the state level, but is his election still pretty significant and what kind of effect could it have on the region? The position that he will now hold gives him a certain amount of power within that region, so within Republika Srpska that he wouldn't otherwise have. One of the powers specifically is it's the president who actually appoints the prime minister of the entity because both entities also have their own prime ministers. So essentially he and his party, which will have a majority in the um, entity level assembly, will have all of the power across, what is it, almost 50% of the country, so almost half of the country's territory. Um, this also plays into his long-standing separatist aspirations. One of the main reasons for the war in Bosnia was the idea that Bosnian Serbs should separate from the rest of the country and live in this concept that was labeled the Greater Serbia, that was also supposed to include a part of Croatia, etc., etc. The idea was that with the signing of the Dayton Peace Accords in 1995, these kinds of separatist ideas would end together with the war. But unfortunately, what Milorad Dodik has done and others before him is that they have tapped into this nationalist narrative that is still present among Bosnian Serbs to an extent. A good portion of people who live in the Republika Srpska do not see themselves as Bosnians, but see themselves as a part of this larger supranational ethnic group. And being in this new position actually gives him a lot more power or a lot more room to maneuver when it comes to any kind of an attempt to actually fraction the country and split it into two. Does it feel to an increasing number of people like the system that they have is contributing to politics having to be organized along ethnic lines, like potentially forever, when that maybe isn't such a good thing. The problem with the system is that it forces you to think in ethnic terms. So it doesn't really leave you much room to think about your identity as being tied closely to the country itself. It rather makes you think in terms of who among your peers is, is Bosniak or Serb or Croat. I personally think that a lot more people would identify as Bosnians. So neither of the three categories if they knew that they would have the same kind of rights as others. And essentially you don't. And I think it's a very specific and unique situation where people who identify with the country itself, who have a sort of a national identity, are second-class citizens to those who have an ethno-national identity or an ethnic identity. So to give you an example, Bosnians cannot run 
for one of the seats the country's presidency because there's no seat for what is called others with a capital O. In the Dayton Peace Agreement, part of which serves as the country's constitution, you have distinctly defined the three main ethnic groups. All of the people who don't identify with the three main ethnic groups fall into the category of others. So you could be from a mixed background, you could be Jewish, you could be Roma, Polish. There's a Ukrainian minority in Bosnia, you could be Ukrainian, and not be able to run for the state-level presidency or be elected to one of the houses of the parliament called the House of Peoples. Now, other citizens have sued the country in front of the uh, European Court of Human Rights, and there have been five distinct decisions that have all gone in favor of people who essentially complained about this, going very much against their basic human rights. Uh, Yet, none of the politicians are really interested in implementing it because that would mean giving up on a certain amount of power and privilege that nobody really likes relinquishing. So all of these ethno-national leaders would have to give away at least a part of the hold that they have over the country, that they've had over the country over the past three decades. And we can get into the debate of who's responsible for the war. But when it comes to the post-war period, all three sides are equally at fault. And that leaves a lot of people in the middle who were either victims of being a part of that ethnic group, falling for the spiel that only your own can protect you from the others and only your own can protect your interests in the country or represent your interests in the country. And then there's another group of people who were never actually really represented by anyone, who have almost no say when it comes to how to run the place to begin with. I think that creates a very dire atmosphere for for your ordinary citizens. And uh, I think it's no surprise that a huge number of people have left over the past decade or so. So I think one figure that we all have is that about 400,000 people have left the country over the past eight or so years. And there's an interesting bit that I noticed is that Bosnia has 3.3 million registered voters in a country where supposedly 3.2 million people live That tells you that a significant portion of people have left, retained their voting right, which they might not even use, but are no longer present in the country. And that's, in my opinion, quite tragic. Alexander is one of our favourite people to follow on Twitter. For all your Balkans meme needs, he is there at Brezar Alexander, and you will find the link in the show notes. What have you been enjoying this week, Katie? This week, I would like to recommend another book that I finished off after the summer, which is Born in Blackness by the journalist Howard W. French. Uh, It is a history of the last six centuries or so, a history of the modern world. And it's not a European recommendation, actually. It's kind of the opposite, because this book is an attempt to correct the Eurocentric nature of how we tend to think about history in the West. It's a history of Africa from the mid-15th century onwards and the arrival and colonization of Africa by Europeans. 
Anna is the history of the taking of slaves from Africa across the Atlantic. So this book has a huge and sweeping scope. And frankly, I think a lot of academic syllabuses would benefit from including this book. Um, the basic argument of it is that Africans and their labor were fundamental to the building of the modern world, but that role has been minimized in the history of the West, like almost to the point of invisibility a lot of the time. It isn't an easy book to read. It does, after all, deal with some of the most painful events in human history. But French is a great writer, and apart from learning masses from this book, I also really liked hearing his personal perspective at points. Um, he is himself the descendant of an enslaved woman. He's also someone who has spent a lot of his career as a journalist in West Africa. And the book is kind of interwoven with a sprinkling of personal observations uh, from his own life and his own travels to give a sense of how this history has impacted places and lives around the world today. Uh, yeah, it's a really excellent book. You should all go read it. It is called Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Sounds really interesting. What have you been enjoying this week? I have a podcast episode recommendation. It's an episode that I actually also listened to over the summer, but it made a big impact on me and has actually transformed the way I eat. Hmm. It was an episode of a podcast called Zoe Science and Nutrition, a podcast that summarizes the latest scientific research around nutrition and health. And it's made by this team at Zoe, who I guess the British people will know who they are. It's this huge British American. I don't know who they are. Oh, really? It's this huge British American company that's been doing loads of COVID, the biggest like COVID study, I think, in the world. Oh. But they actually existed originally to build software to track individuals' nutritional response patterns. In their podcast, they talk about all this pretty complex and cutting edge science, but in a very accessible way, even for non-scientific idiots like me. And there was this one episode I listened to whilst in the car on holiday that I found so fascinating. It was an episode in which the host, Jonathan Wolfe, interviews Jesse Anchospey, who's a French biochemist and writer who specializes in researching how to control our blood sugar levels through eating and what the medical benefits of that are. I was a bit hesitant to mention her today because I actually just want to get her on the show because she's one of those people that manages to make a rather dry sounding topic so interesting and actually almost fun. So hopefully this is just a sneak preview of her work for you all. She has such clear and simple tips for how to avoid these sugar highs. One of which is that if you eat some greens, ideally with a bit of vinegar at the beginning of every meal, the glucose spike from the subsequent meal will be considerably lower. Huh. And reducing glucose spikes has a huge range of short and long-term physical benefits. I found it really eye-opening. So go check out her episode on the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast. The episode is called How to Control Blood Sugar Spikes. And it came out in late July this year. Cool. I'm going to check that out. And uh, also hand it over to my very diabetic family. Okay, you want a happy ending? I mean, I've already had the anal beads, but um, <laughs> yes, I'll take it. <laughs> this week I've got a happy ending. Um, oh, also kind of anally themed, actually, I didn't realise. It's <laughs> oh, about a nice fantastic. use of cow poo in the Netherlands um, that I read about in Euronews Green. The Netherlands currently has a big problem with high levels of nitrogen emissions, and these emissions actually need big government interventions, which the government are 
legally required to pass, and it's been a big political topic over the last year here. But this week I heard about a small-scale intervention that could, in theory, become a slightly bigger-scale nitrogen hack and do a little bit to lower those nitrogen emissions. The article was about the positive benefits seen by a flower grower who has taken to using the nitrogen from cow poo to feed his growing chrysanthemums. Now, Using cow manure as a fertilizer is not a radical innovation. But what was so nice about this story was that the flower grower had been using industrial nitrogen made from natural gas. And he discovered that by switching to this cow poo, he is saving money. It is actually cheaper, even if it has to be processed through a biogas fermenter. And not only that, but he reckons his flowers are happy with their new regimen. He said to Euronews that the flowers are having a, quote, good time although he couldn't confirm whether they were smiling or not so stop buying your industrial nitrogen and move over to cow poo it sounds like it'll make your plants happy that's a very beautiful story thank you we should call this the anal episode that's it for this week if you cannot get enough of hearing us witter on, why not delve into our back catalogue? Um, we got a lovely message the other day from a new listener who has decided to start listening to this podcast from the beginning. They're currently in 2018. Why not join them by travelling through time with this podcast? Europe has been through a lot of changes since we started making it. Uh, but if you're more interested in recent communications, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at EuropeansPod and Instagram at EuropeansPodcast. This episode was produced by Wojciech Oleksiak and Katie Lee. Thank you both. Our other producer, Katz, is just about to head off to Ukraine to do some reporting there. We wish her the best of luck there. Safe travels, Katz. We are part of the Are We Europe podcast network. Go and check out their other audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Saha. Saha.